comparison I use far too often is that of a heart attack or someone broke their bone. We don't chastise people for getting a cast and saying they don't have enough faith, but we do that with mental health. We don't chastise someone for going to the hospital after a heart attack, but we do that with mental health so many times. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe that the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Center for Congregations podcast. I'm Matt Perk, one of your co-hosts. And with me today is Shelly Riggs-Jordan. Hey, Shelly. Hey, Matt. It's good to be here today. Yeah, good to see you. And this is the episode that launches immediately before Thanksgiving of 2023. And Thanksgiving means a lot of family, probably, around the table and potentially lots of arguments. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, families. Indeed, indeed. But today's episode hopefully will help with that. We're actually going to be talking about neuroscience with our guest. So we're very excited about that topic. And Shelly, you and I were just absolutely geeking out during the interview. (laughs) Yes. But what is it for you that is so fascinating or interesting about neuroscience? For me, early on in my career as a youth pastor, I read a book. And in that book, he described changes physically and mentally and emotionally that were going on in the life of a teenager. And it was heavily focused on brain science. And some of the stuff I had never heard before, but it 100% explained what I was seeing in students. And it gave me a different perspective. It gave me more grace and it allowed me to help adults and parents in the lives of these kids understand what was going on in a way that transformed relationships. And I Mm. fell in love with the idea of brain science from that point forward, just because it was so impactful to understand more deeply what's happening. And so that was it for me. How about for you? Yeah, I think two things. Number one, just my own mental health journey, as I've tried to take advantage of different resources and things out there, it's really helped me to understand myself, but also just understand other people's behavior that, you know, (laughs) without getting too much into the free will versus predestination (laughs) conversation about how much (laughs) is actually in our control or not. Well, you know, I came from a background of a very libertarian free will, you know, Wesleyan Arminian camp and believing that anything was possible at any time for a person. And while I do think there's many things that are within our control, I think there's a lot of things that potentially shape and guide our behavior and potentially limit our choices. And so that's been a helpful understanding for me very practically. And then in addition, just like what you were saying, I came across, and I'll reference this in the show notes at the end, but I came across the work of Orange with, it's just a phase. And so recognizing developmental stages of children, which helped me with my own kids and just even understanding that, you know, our 14-year-old right now is finding his own way with his friend groups and he's spending a heck of a lot more time outside the house and like, don't take it personally. Don't take it personally. Like this is the period of differentiation that someone begins to shape and mold their own unique identity outside of the family unit to some degree. Yeah. And so it makes it a little, it's still hard. It's still hard. (laughs) It makes it a little less hard knowing that, that it's just kind of a natural occurrence. And it was always helpful to me, like, cause they try on different personalities at about that age too. 
And I can remember thinking a couple of times, oh, I can't wait till this kid figures out this is not a personality trait that will fit for life because they're making me crazy. (laughs) (laughs) But they do. They cycle through. Hey, is this me? Is this me? Yeah, it's a great process, but it helps to know. Yeah, I don't know if I really landed on mine until I was about 35. So there you you go. (laughs) There is that. And for listeners who listen to the podcast a lot, we typically open up with how these things show up in our work with congregations. But we didn't start there today just because we are going to talk about neuroscience and mental health and that intersection. But the world of neuroscience is definitely much broader than just mental health. And so we wanted to mention just a couple of things in that avenue and hopefully to begin to think about neuroscience and behavioral science as useful tools to understand how people in your family react, how people in your congregation react, how you yourself might react and interact. And Christians always go back to that passage about Paul talking about, I don't do the things that I want to do, and I do the things that I don't want to do. And there's probably some neuroscience intersections in that passage with the Apostle Paul. But yeah, we just wanted to kind of begin with that conversation around science and behavior. I'm a big believer in the more we know, the more we understand, the more grace we can offer. Mm. And I think that's one of the things that neuroscience, especially in the intersection of neuroscience and mental health, can do for us shine light and help us offer more grace because we understand a little more fully what's happening. Yeah, because in the Christian tradition that I grew up in, personal responsibility trumped everything. Mm -hmm. And I still believe in personal responsibility, but there's personal responsibility and. Yes. (laughs) And also the arc of a person's entire life and not just one decision made in a given moment that defines everything about who they are. And the world of mental health, the world of neuroscience, behavioral sciences have really just opened up that door for me. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Well, hey, we'll go ahead and get to our interview then. And we are very excited to have from the Yale School of Medicine, Dr. Nee Addy. He's the Albert E. Kent Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Associate Professor of Cellular and Molecular Physiology and the Inaugural Director of Scientist Diversity and Inclusion at Yale School of Medicine. So just super excited to have someone who is in that world, but also has a vibrant life of faith and understands congregations. And we hope that you find this interview as interesting and as exciting as we did. All right, everybody, welcome back. We are here with Dr. Nee Addy. Uh, Dr. Addy, we are so thankful for your time today. Thanks for being here. Of course, my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. So I want to dive right in. I'm curious as to how neuroscience is obviously a very big field. And so I'm sure Mm -hmm. that there are many different pathways one can take. But I'm curious as to how you came to an interest in the intersection of neuroscience and mental health. That's a great question. It actually came a little bit over time. So I'm glad you segued with the vastness of the neuroscience field. So just by a little bit of a segue, that was an interesting process for me, even getting into neuroscience. As a college student trying to decide if I want to do biology as a major or psychology as a major, had a lot of good mentorship, had a psychology professor who actually told me to be a biology major, which was initially offensive because I thought I wasn't cut out for his <laughs> his field. But I think he actually saw a spark there that I had for biology. And so that was a little bit of my formative process and had some experience and exposure to research along the way. But the intersection of mental health and faith actually came later in the process. So I think I just was curious about the field of neuroscience and really trying to understand what's happening in the brain that causes us to act the way we do and behave the way we do. I got involved in research that was looking at different populations of people struggling with mental health challenges like schizophrenia, thinking about 90% of those individuals who smoke cigarettes. And so there was this really curious 
science question as to why that was happening. So that was kind of my foray. In graduate school, I started to think a little bit more about how substances impact the brain. So got interested in the biochemistry of substance use and misuse. But really, as I developed and grew my research program, began to think more about the intersection, partially because of my faith as a Christian, but then also through conversations I was just having with people. Whenever people heard what I did for my research or for a living, there was always a question because substance use, anxiety, depression, those things touch everybody in some shape or form. Mm -hmm. And so it was almost like I was opening up an opportunity that I hadn't necessarily thought of as a way to integrate the two, but it seemed like there was just a need there to have bigger conversations around those topics. And so I won't say I accidentally stumbled into it, but there were opportunities that I feel like I was placing people in my life that was cluing me in to say, okay, this is a topic that is really near and dear to people's hearts. The other piece I should mention at the risk of being long-winded is I have a little bit of a family history there as well. So my dad is a psychiatrist, did his medical training in Ghana, came to the States. I told him growing up, I didn't want to do anything like him or be anything like him. I obviously failed. <laughs> he always says, oh, but you're not, you're not an MD. You're not a physician like I am. And I always say, but my title is associate professor of psychiatry. <laughs> that feels very similar to me. But in a full circle moment, I was able to participate in a conversation on a college campus. And the topic was the spiritual and biological components of addiction and depression. Mm. And the other panelist who was there was the psychiatrist who trained my dad when he came to the States to do his oh, residency wow. back in the early 70s. So I never met him. I heard his name for years. And so that was a full circle moment. Kept saying, oh, Dr. A did a wonderful job. And his dad was a great student. And so in a funny way, that actually brought me back as we were having that conversation, just to see the questions that were coming from the audience. And then also to know there was a little bit of a family legacy there as well. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> So a lot of our audience, we are not strangers to the topic of mental health, but most mm -hmm. of our conversations, most of our education events have been around more in the realm of psychology and into therapy. We've had a lot of people who are, you know, licensed mm -hmm. mental health therapists, things like that. So what specifically, not that I'm questioning this because I know that it has a lot to bring, but what specifically does an understanding of neuroscience bring to the understanding of mental health that maybe our audience hasn't heard before or is unaware of? Yeah. So for us, in the lab specifically, we're trying to understand what processes are happening in the brain that allow things like anxiety or depression or addiction to emerge. So to give a really practical example, one of the things we look at is relapsed behavior. So if someone has been using a substance for a period of time and they've decided they want to decrease that substance use or actually stop using the substance, it's often very difficult. There are lots of things that can precipitate or facilitate relapse. Stress being one of those, sometimes just being back in an environment where you're used to hanging out with certain people or taking certain substances. And so what we're trying to do is understand what's happening in the brain that allows that relapse to occur in the first place. Mm -hmm. So one of the brain chemicals that a lot of people talk about is dopamine. So people always think about that dopamine and reward, things that are pleasurable. But it's also actually really important for associations that we make. So I always used to use the example, if someone smokes every time they go to a bar, and then they all of a sudden decide, okay, I'm going to stop smoking. Just going to the bar itself leads to an increase of dopamine in the brain in the same way that the nicotine used to do that, which makes it that much harder and that actually facilitates the craving. So a lot of what we're doing is trying to say, okay, how can we actually change the brain's response to make it easier for people to actually get to a place of less use or potentially even abstinence? And so we think about those things with things like a depression as well. So depression, it can happen for a whole bunch of different reasons. 
often for things that have happened to people in the past or difficult things that they're experiencing. But all those things also impact the brain. And so in the same way that therapy can help us kind of think through and talk through ways to navigate through that, we can also take a look and say, well, what's happening in the brain in this stressful situation that's making it more likely that someone is going to lead into a depressive episode? And maybe we can actually think about therapies and medications that can help people with that, especially in cases of severe depression, things like depression, where some therapies and some medications like ketamine have been really effective for people who are really struggling with severe depression, where therapy or other types of psychiatric or psychological interventions haven't been able to help them as thoroughly as they could alone. And maybe we can combine that with medication because of what we understand and what's happening in the brain. Mm -hmm. Another long-winded answer for you. (laughs) No, it's fine. I appreciate the context. It's fascinating. It almost lays down habits or pathways that connect things for us. And then when even just a piece of that connection is triggered, it starts like a whole process, if I'm understanding what you're saying. Exactly. And then there are lots of different ways we can short circuit that process. And it's different things that work for different people. So, I mean, even things like prayer and meditation, people have done studies to look at how prayer can actually activate certain parts of the brain that can help us regulate through those emotions. Things like cognitive behavioral therapy can actually bring centers of the brain online. They're important for emotional regulation that can help, again, decrease those responses. Sometimes combining therapy with medications is really effective. Sometimes the medication might be there for a period of time and then the therapy alone. So there are all these different permutations that can help, but we're really just trying to answer, well, what are all these things actually doing to the brain that's facilitating this process in the first place? You got me going on the neuroscience. (laughs) I love this. My brain is like whirring. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned ketamine treatment, and I'm aware Mm -hmm. that that is something that, is that considered a schedule one substance at this point? You are correct. It is a controlled substance. Yeah. And I know it's in that realm. And I'm also aware that recently, I think psilocybin is being mm-hmm. moved through the FDA at a pretty rapid yes. rate. Yeah. And for some aspects of our society and culture, there are some really negative associations mm-hmm. with things like ketamine and psilocybin. So I'd be interested in how we need to think about those in terms of potential treatment. Are these mm-hmm. things that are just always dangerous and should be you know, considered as such, or do we need to have a bit more of an open mind and allow science to take the lead on what's happening right now? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question because I think it's one that's on a lot of people's minds. I'm not sure how often it gets talked about. So I think it's important to consider. And I would say it's a little bit of both in terms of leading with the science, but then also thinking about context as well. So ketamine is a great example. So ketamine chemically is very close to PCP. And so it does have some of those hallucinogenic properties to it. It's also something that's also used and misused. So on the street, people refer to it as special K. So it's also used for tranquilizing. So there are all these contexts that are associated with it. So that can give people a little bit of hesitancy, but I think it's also important to think about the context in which it's used and also the effect that it has. So I did have a conversation on my podcast with somebody who has had ketamine treatment in the past, who has also been able to combine that with therapy and cognitive interventions. And from her words, she would say that saved her life. Oh, wow. Because she was really dealing with very severe suicidal ideation. She had tried a lot of different things. She's actually here, someone who works on our campus in other ways. And so she also had access to a lot of the treatments that people don't normally have access to. And even in her situation, there were layers that made it difficult for her to get the treatment she needed. But she's stated publicly that without ketamine, she does not know if she'd still be around. Wow. So when you put that context into the concerns, it doesn't remove that the concerns are valid. 
but it says here is an intervention that likely saves somebody's life. And we don't want to ignore that just because we're concerned about the other associations that the substance may have. So I think it's helpful to have that whole perspective with things. Now, obviously, special K can still be misused, but there are also things that we can do to think about the positive components. One of the things I will say with ketamine as well, is there's actually been research to try and look at derivatives, so different forms of ketamine that don't have as many of those, for instance, hallucinogenic components that may not have the same addictive properties, but still target the same pathways in the brain. So it's almost as if that's been a helpful starting point, a life-saving starting point, but there's other things that we can look at as well. So I'd use that same argument thinking about things like psilocybin, which you know has a lot of promise as well, that we should think about the context, but we shouldn't just initially just have a negative approach to it without evaluating it because of the other associations. But we also should use wisdom as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for those who don't know, psilocybin is the key ingredient for what people call magic mushrooms. And people think about you know psychedelic experiences. I think there was some research done that kind of got smashed. Was it in the 1960s, maybe the 1970s? Mm-hmm, probably, yeah. At some point, but now it's back in research circles. And I think treatment options are for kind of PTSD, complex PTSD, anxiety, depression, those kinds of things. Is that correct? Exactly. And I know that even here in Connecticut, there have been a lot of conversations with researchers on campus and with legislators. Again, just to have an understanding of the possible benefits and ways to actually move things forward. So. Yeah, because societally, there's often a very, especially in more conservative circles, a very knee-jerk reaction to Mm -hmm. just hearing use of that. But outside of the context that we've talked about, of course, in terms of research and mental health. I would say that that knee-jerk reaction is also understandable because I also see that knee-jerk reaction with medications in general in a lot of Mm -hmm. circles. And so when you add on the layer of something that's a psychedelic, it even becomes that much more of a hesitation that people have. Sure. Yeah, and I'm curious, as someone who has an intersection of the understandings of neuroscience, mental health, and faith. Based on the conversation, I imagine you're someone who does not have an issue with people medicating in order to Mm -hmm. help themselves in terms of mental health. Can you speak to some of the challenges in that space? Because I know that there are a lot of people in the congregational sphere that do have a reluctance, even things like Prozac that have been on the market for, you know, decades. Mm -hmm. There's a reluctance to take advantage of medications. And I'm curious as to your perspective as a person who's in this realm, what you might say to folks who might have a reluctance to medication. Yeah. I mean, I think the reluctance is understandable because I think oftentimes for, I'll just say for any physical ailment, there often is a reluctance and maybe even an admittance over prescribe something like, Oh, like I just feel disappointed that I have to take this medication. Let's say I have, so I used to have migraines quite a bit. They were frustrating themselves. Medications were helpful, but to think about, okay, is this now a limitation or a handicap that I have? So there is part of that perception that comes as well. I mean, if someone is navigating through diabetes, you know, all the different ailments that we think about, there sometimes is a heaviness to that. I think we apply that when we think about mental health, but probably even more to a greater extent. So I'll hear people say things like, oh, I don't know if I should take this medication because it might change my personality. And so there are those hesitations that come. I think it's really helpful to be able to talk through those things. So it's not helpful to pretend those hesitations don't exist because then people just feel like they're not being attended to, they're not being seen, they're being ignored and being diminished. So it is helpful to kind of talk through those things, but then also have conversations with whoever's prescribing to know that those aren't always long-term pieces, but they might be something that needs to be used long-term. And then I think it also just comes with layers. So a lot of us might be okay with, okay, may not easy, but let's say I have to take something that decreases my anxiety. Maybe that's okay. Or maybe an antidepressant, but maybe if it's an antipsychotic, like that just feels different or more heavy or more problematic. So I would say, I mean, I'm basically saying, I think there's layers to it. 
I think there's an inherent discomfort with medication because it shows something that we need to remedy, but then depending on the type of medication and just the way we think about mental health, it can be stigmatized. And then especially in our faith traditions, unfortunately, there's still lots of conversations where people say, well, you don't really need that. You just need to pray harder and you're not being healed because you're not praying hard enough. And so we, we make that mistake of forgetting that God has given us knowledge about all these different pieces. The joke I use or the comparison I use far too often is that of a heart attack or someone broke their bone. We don't chastise people for getting a cast and say they don't have enough faith, but we do that with mental health. We don't chastise someone for going to the hospital after a heart attack, but we do that with mental health so many times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, much more accepting of physical ailments than mental, even though mental is physical but we can't see it as readily, maybe. I'm not sure where it comes from, but yeah. Right, really well said. I have a question about the medication you were talking about. And this is just, I guess, a process curiosity I have. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you get from, hey, there's this psychedelic drug. Maybe we should try it for people who are really depressed. Like, how does that process work? Yeah, good question. So I'll talk about it with ketamine just because I'm a little bit more familiar with how that process developed since a lot of that was done here at Yale, but I know the processes are similar for things like psilocybin and others. So the ketamine story actually started from, I shouldn't call it random, but a surprising clinical finding that some psychiatrists noted here at Yale when they were actually trying to help patients with another ailment. And they noticed that, I don't remember why they've been using ketamine, but there seemed to be some type of decrease in depression-like symptomology with that ketamine. And so that's something that actually sat for maybe 10 or 15 years. Later, people actually came back to that. And a lot of this was for studies that were done humanely in rats and mice initially. So trying to look at things like how much would the mice seek out pleasure or spend time with other mice. If they had been exposed to chronic stressors, that would change some of their behaviors. So you can't you know, ask a mouse or a rat if it's depressed. <laughs> but you can start to look at some of their behaviors right. to get a sense of if that might decrease their normal activity. And so that was a place where people actually were able to start to understand what ketamine was doing in the brain. So they're able to actually look at brain activity, brain pathways, electrical connections, chemical connections. And they saw that it seemed like ketamine, again, was having behavioral effects in those animals, similar to what they saw in people. So people tried to understand how that was happening. It turns out through a lot of different studies, they were able to see that the centers of the brain that regulate the emotion, particularly in the front of the brain, prefrontal cortex, seemed to be activated by ketamine and seemed to dampen some of these other areas that are more emotion responsive. And so there were a lot of different studies that people did to basically find out what we call the mechanism of action of ketamine. And then to actually take that back into the clinic and see if it still had efficacy and then also use brain imaging to see whether that same process was happening in humans. So it can often go in different ways. Sometimes the finding happens first in humans and we back translate or go back to animals to understand it. Sometimes people will notice things in the animals first, but looking at certain behaviors, like the relapse I talked about, we can actually model that in rats and see what agents can decrease that relapse behavior. We're doing that with some antihypertensive medications. And now we're going the other way to set up clinical studies to see whether it has the same effects in people. So there's no one answer to your question, but there are lots of different ways that that process kind of go back and forth between rodents and humans and everything in between. So when you're doing a study with medication, you're looking at more than just what your target is, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, mm-hmm. this is what we were shooting for, but are you noticing that this is happening over here? And so it might have a different implication or use than maybe what you even imagined. 
Exactly. And that's a really good point. That's something that's definitely come up in our research. So initially we were focused on the substance use disorder piece, but we had also noticed, and we weren't even necessarily looking at one medication, but kind of looking at what's happening in the brain and are there certain proteins or pathways that are involved that we could target with different medications to kind of reverse that process. As we were doing that, we realized that a lot of the processes we were looking at were also implicated in depression and anxiety. So then we started to think about, well, what happens when someone is in abstinence or withdrawal? Oftentimes they have heightened anxiety. So maybe we should also think about, are there agents that can actually decrease the anxiety and decrease the craving simultaneously? Also, those who are navigating through depression and anxiety have a higher likelihood to misuse substances. So it kind of gave us a clue for some of the coexistence of these things. But then to your point, we identified a certain target and then we realized, okay, these targets are called calcium channels, a specific type of calcium channels. They're actually FDA-approved medications on the market that are already used for hypertension that target those same channels throughout the body. So that actually can decrease people's blood pressure. But there was some evidence that those are also important in neuropsychiatric illnesses in the brain. So now we had a specific target we were looking at. And we're saying, okay, this medication is already approved. Maybe this medication will actually have effects in some of these different processes that we're looking at. So there's lots of different ways that we can get to the research question. Part of it, like you mentioned, is just paying attention the things that we noticed that might not have been our initial question, but might give us a clue to something that's coming. And oftentimes, the breakthroughs in medicine usually happen that way. You're looking for one thing and you see something over here. So you have to be open to disproving yourself and seeing something that you didn't expect. Wow, that's fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for the question. Yeah, so turning the corner a little bit to congregations, and from your perspective, what are some things that congregational leaders who really care about their people, really care about the holistic health of their people, what do they need to know and understand in order to be places where they can be support and help to those with serious, well, not even serious mental illnesses, really any mental illnesses? Mm-hmm. I think part of that inherently comes with a position already and just being able to be there and to listen. So sometimes, I mean, I share that in a lot of different circles that I'm in. Maybe it doesn't fit as much in church settings, but so often of what we do as listeners is not actually listening, especially when it comes to mental health. I think we all have an inclination to try and fix it right away. Mm -hmm. So someone starts to share and then we say, well, you need to do this, you need to do this, have you done this, without actually hearing the story and where the person is coming from. So sometimes it just takes taking a step back and being willing to at first just listen and hear and understand, but then also being able to connect people to resources. So, I mean, that can definitely start in the church. Oftentimes, you know, a faith leader or someone else will be the first line of defense in a sense, or the first person who hears about that in confidence. So to be able to listen and to give some spiritual guidance as well, um, depending on the person's background, some people have more extensive backgrounds in counseling and can also lean into that counseling. But I think it takes a lot of partnering. So being willing to say that this is something that perhaps is outside of my area as a pastor and to connect with others, whether that be a social worker or a psychologist or another mental health professional or a psychiatrist, and not feeling inadequate or ashamed to do so, but to be able to work in those things together in teams. I've seen a lot of great things happening in different parts of the country where either you know a church might have an affiliated counseling services center where they have access to those individuals. Some churches here in New Haven actually now are providing those services within the church setting in partnership with psychiatrists. So providing addiction services, for instance, or treatment for depression, actually seeing better rates of improvement within the church setting because people are in a comfortable environment 
rather than people having to step out of their comfort zone to go to an office or a physician's place uh, as well. But I think that's especially important when we talk about things like trauma. So trauma in and of itself can be very challenging if people and if the pastors or ministers don't necessarily have a train or background in trauma counseling, sometimes they can inadvertently make things worse or re-traumatize the person. So sometimes it takes a lot of courage to say, you know, this sounds like something that we might need to pull somebody else in, someone who has specific expertise and extensive training in trauma counseling that can actually help people walk through. And that doesn't mean that the pastor or minister has to remove themselves from the conversation. Again, it can be in partnership, but I think it's important that we have those conversations. One plug that I'll make, because the American Psychiatric Association Foundation actually has a really helpful pamphlet called Mental Health, A Guide for Faith Leaders. And it's written for faith leaders, but I think it's generally applicable to everyone in the church setting and faith settings because it provides a lot of just practical things to look for and practical resources as well. That's really helpful. Yeah, so I appreciate that resource. And we'll have a resource section where Shelly and I will talk about maybe resources that we're aware of for congregational leaders, but I'm very much interested in resources like what you just mentioned that you would recommend to faith leaders where they could find additional information to be able to be a resource and be a help to their congregations. Yeah, one of the resources I often mention is the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI, so N-A-M-I.org. It's a grassroots organization, been around for a few decades across the country, but they also have a lot of local chapters. The nice thing about that organization is they provide support not only for people who are navigating through mental health illness or mental health challenges, but also their friends and loved ones. So oftentimes those individuals unfortunately get forgotten about, but it can also be mentally taxing to try and support somebody through the, whatever ups and downs that may involve. And so NAMI is really good about having all those different types of support groups. Um, they also just tie in with lots of different local organizations. And they also talk about the practice and the place of faith and spirituality. So again, if people are thinking about how to integrate spiritual practices with some of the psychological or psychiatric tools, NAMI is very open about having those conversations and really helping people to think holistically about ways to approach things. Fantastic. Thanks for that. Mm -hmm. Also, well, I don't know if people are familiar with Kirk Thompson, who is a psychiatrist. He wrote a book a few years ago called Anatomy of the Soul. Um, that's a really good resource as well. Great. Thank you for that. And you also mentioned a podcast that you do. I would love for mm -hmm. our listeners to know about that and also know ways to find your work and any places that they can follow you. Yeah. So the podcast is called Addy Hour. So A-D-D-Y and an hour. I think we have about 45 episodes at this point, and it really encompasses a lot of things that we've talked about today. So intersection of neuroscience, mental health, faith, culture, and social justice. So a little bit of everything. Wow. All the things you're not supposed to talk about around the dinner table. <laughs> the very first episode we did two and a half years ago, in the middle of the pandemic, was wellness, pandemics, race, and politics. <laughs> So, wow. We definitely leaned in. I had a clinical psychologist join with a political scientist and just to think about things like our mental health, but also the quote unquote health or mental health of our country. And so I think it's been really helpful because I've been able to partner with people from all walks of life. So we've had faith leaders, we've had community leaders on there, we've had scientists, clinicians, professional entertainers, public advocates professional athletes who've all shared, some, even some political pundits, who've all shared around those similar topics from their various perspectives and walks of life. And it's been very interesting to see the many parallels that have come up in people's stories, even though people's stories are vastly different. So to have a hip hop artist paired with a neuroscientist, 
or a pastor paired with a psychiatrist or a political pundit, you know, paired with an entertainer. And just to see the conversations that come out of those have been really rich and really practical as well. So full circle, going back to the conversation that we had about my dad being a psychiatrist, he actually practices sleep medicine as well. And so it talks a lot about just important sleep practices. And so he joined to talk about sleep and how that impacts mental health and so many different aspects of health as well. So a lot of practical resources that people can hear and powerful stories that people can hear listening to that podcast. So eddiehour.com, it's also on all podcast platforms. We also have a YouTube channel if people want to watch. In particular, this is a little bit odd, but when I interviewed my dad on Zoom, you know, already in my 40s, but till that moment, I didn't appreciate how many mannerisms I had gotten from him until I saw both of us on the screen <laughs> together. You'd think I would know that by this point in life, but somehow. <laughs> That's great. That's really cool. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> and how did you do with that? Sometimes when we see a parent come out of us, it's like, oh, or hey, that's okay. <laughs> I think the whole house like, oh, that's where I got that from. Oh, that's where I got that from. And so maybe it made me realize, okay, maybe some of these things I thought were just me aren't actually me as much as I thought they were. That's great. It was also very refreshing and encouraging. Good. <laughs> and a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, do I call him dad? Yeah. Dr. Eddie? Oh, yeah. Dr. Dad? <laughs> I love it. That's really cool. So we'll definitely make sure to link to your podcast and the show notes and link to the webpage. Any other places people can find you and your work? Are you on any socials? Yep. So I'm also on Twitter, Dr. Nee Addy, on Instagram, Dr. Nee Addy, also Addy Hour, also on LinkedIn and starting to do more writings. I have a newsletter that I also write called the Addy Minute. So that you can find at niiaddy.substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. And there I just talk about a lot of the things we've been talking about as well. And just also my personal journey, in case people are curious about that and how that intersects with everything uh, that's come up here today as well. Sure. Yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah. And as we round out our time here, what words of hope and encouragement would you give to congregational leaders? Because there does seem to be such a rise in mental health issues and concerns. What are the bright spots? What are the hopes? So for me, this conversation is one of those hopes. The fact that these conversations are happening more and more in church settings that people are open to it and really trying to address things from a holistic standpoint to think about you know all the tools that god has given us to be able to thrive through our challenges one of the quotes that i love so dr eddie Glaub jr was on one of our podcasts and talked a lot about having beauty through brokenness mm. and not just trying to get to this place of false wholeness as if we can be whole without going through brokenness so it's been really encouraging for me to see the ways that congregations have actually embraced that and they're actually saying, we're going to be here to walk through this with those in our congregations, not to pretend that it's not there, but to think how we can all get to a better place um, of wholeness through our brokenness. So for me, it's been really encouraging to see that partnership emerge and to know that the partnerships are continuing to emerge in so many ways. I see mental health professionals partnering with pastors and faith leaders is super encouraging. That's great. Appreciate that very much. All right. So anybody listening to this podcast, we do have Dr. Addy coming in to present a couple of education events for us in late November of 2023. So the first one is going to be on November 21st, 2023 at 1030 a.m. Eastern time. And the second one will be November 28th at 1030 a.m. Eastern time. If you are hearing this after those dates, we will have the recording posted on our website for a period of time after that. And if it's beyond that, if you're in the middle or late 24 or even beyond, and you're curious about it, you can email us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org and we can make that recording available. So Dr. Addy, thank you so much for your time today. 
And we look forward to the education events coming up in a few weeks. Excellent. I'm definitely looking forward to that as well. Welcome back. That was Dr. Nee Addy. And what a fascinating conversation. I think Matt and I could have kept him on that podcast recording for another couple of hours. So many great things, so many great insights, such great information. Matt, what do you think? Yeah, so many things. (laughs) I mean, we did actually keep him on for an additional 10 minutes after the interview, just talking (laughs) curiosities that we had. But from the interview itself, well, you know, one of the interesting things that he mentioned that I had never thought of when thinking about reluctance for medication is just that sense of like, you know, he even mentioned non-mental health medications, that there's just this sense of, I really don't want there to be something wrong with me that I need this medication. Yeah. And thinking about, you know, somebody who's got maybe high blood pressure and how they may feel stigma about that, that it literally may not even be their fault because of, you know, just genetic factors. But there's that sense that, I must be doing something wrong if there's something wrong with my body and it feels like a defeat to take a medication to handle it. I should just be able to, you know, grip my teeth and just get it done. Yes. But realizing that, you know, no human body is fully functional in 100% of the capacities that a human body is supposed to be. And we all need, especially as we age, we need that additional help. And sometimes even when we're just very young and that's okay. Yeah. And people are bad about taking medication. I mean, how many times do people not finish a round of antibiotics because they feel better and they just want to be done? So yeah, you're right. I think that's true of just about every aspect of our life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What are some things that you took away from the conversation? So when Dr. Addy said something to the point about brokenness and what I heard him say was, what if our brokenness is the pathway to wholeness? And that whole beauty for ashes passage in the Bible really came to mind for me because I don't think people often see brokenness as anything but brokenness. What's the purpose of this? What is the point of this suffering? But what if that, what if the brokenness, what if the suffering truly is the pathway to wholeness? Mm -hmm. Uh, That was just kind of a transformational thought for me. I kind of hung my hat on that for a little bit. I don't know what he said after that because I was just like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) That just really resonated with me. Yeah, there's a Japanese arts method called kintsugi that essentially is taking broken things like a broken bowl and reassembling it with gold lacquer in the cracks. And so you're recreating the thing as it was, but its brokenness is apparent, but what has joined it together is gold. And wow. just they create just really beautiful pieces out of that artwork and just saw that recently and just thought, what a powerful metaphor wow. uh, for exactly what he was talking about that, you know, the wholeness comes from the brokenness. And even just, you know, physically, they talk about when you break a bone, where it heals back up, it's stronger in that space than it otherwise would have been. And so, yeah, that there's something to the brokenness of this world that everyone experiences. But I think if we allow it to do its right work, it does create strength and it creates beauty in who we are. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole, that'll preach. (laughs) (laughs) There's a whole conversation that could be had around that. Yeah, that was just fascinating for me. And the whole idea of how they come up with like medications and the methodology, Mm -hmm. you know, they're running experiments and they're watching not just their target, but they're watching. For me, it sounded like 
hey, there's a loose thread on the rug right there. What if we pull on that a little bit? What are we going to mm-hmm. find? And that mm-hmm. a lot of times the research leads them in directions that they hadn't been anticipating. And I thought that was really fascinating too. Yeah. Yeah. And it just argues for attentiveness yes. in our lives. You know, in that specific science, it's so critical because paying attention to things that may be outside of what you were initially looking at, discoveries are made. And I just wonder how transferable that might be to just attentiveness and presence in all of the things that we do and all the aspects, especially of congregational life. Yeah. What we might observe and what we might learn from those observations. Yeah, that's a good point, Matt. I know when I'm having a conversation with someone, I'm listening to their words, but I'm watching their behavior. Mm. And oftentimes some of the questions I ask people are based on what I'm seeing and not what I'm hearing. And so it's that paying attention to the whole, not just to the piece that sometimes will tip me off that maybe something is wrong or we need to switch the conversation to a different direction. So I think you're on to something there about attentiveness. Yeah, and just holistically, just taking away from this conversation that, you know, when someone says neuroscience, the first thing that pops into my head is not, oh, that's going to be helpful for a church leader. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But reminding ourselves that there are these disciplines that are out there and, and even theology, right? Even just the heights of theology where people are arguing over subtle nuances of things, but remembering that there is practicality in these disciplines. And Dr. Addy was just one of those wonderful people who is in that world, but can take mm-hmm. that art and take that science and bring it down to a practical level that is usable. And it reminds me that I need to pay more attention to things that aren't just the popular podcasts or the popular pieces of information that I might glean from places that I should look deeper into academic disciplines from time to time because there is practicality. That's the whole reason that they're there is they're meant to explore life in a certain way that initially may not seem like it has practical value, but inherent in it somewhere there is. And so finding that. Yeah, that's a good point. It was a fascinating conversation when he started talking about his podcast and the the people that he brings together for conversations that don't seem like they're going to fit, but then these fantastic conversations come out of it. I thought that was, I'm not a podcast listener and I know that's terrible because I help Matt with the podcast and we co-host <laughs> and I do you listen to some say of that ours. On the podcast, I know, Shelley. I know, I know. I do listen in my car sometimes, but I thought, oh, I think that would be fascinating to listen to. Yeah, absolutely. As soon as we hang up from this Zoom call, I will be following his podcast and checking that out. Absolutely. Cool. So speaking of podcasts and resources, let's turn our attention. So we talked about quite a number of resources during the podcast and even on the front end of the podcast, but we also want to share some things on the back end of the podcast. And so Shelly, what resources do you have? So there's a resource from Orange and Orange is a family ministry organization and they have something called It's Just a Phase. And it talks about the different phases that our kids go through from a developmental point of view. And so they have curriculum that you can use in your ministries. They also have things that you can give to parents, like little booklets that you can give to parents that says it's just a phase. And it talks about what is happening with your one-year-old, your 10-year-old, your 15-year-old in that stage and point in their life. And I think it's very helpful for parents to understand their kids a little bit better. Cool. And the other one that I have is a book that I mentioned in the podcast a little bit ago. It's called Middle School Ministry 
A Comprehensive Guide to Working with Early Adolescents. And it's a book that Mark Ostreicher wrote. It's like 2009, but it talks about developmental stages of specifically junior high from a physical point of view, from an emotional point of view, from a cognitive point of view. And it really transformed the way I saw students and their development. It gave me a lot of grace for them. One of my favorite images from the book, Marco says, puberty is like a tsunami. It comes in and completely wipes out the landscape as they know it and replaces it with things they can't even recognize. And I thought, oh my gosh, what a great way to describe puberty. So those would be my, those would be my resources. How about for you, Matt? That's awesome. Yeah, before I get to mine, just an observation. That's one of the cool things about resources like what you've mentioned is that so much of that is based on behavioral and neuroscience, which is different than generational studies. Mm. And so there's an element to it. It doesn't age like generational studies do necessarily. Yes. That, you know, there may be writings on millennials that might fade in terms of usefulness, but this kind of thing, at least for, you know, our Western culture, probably still hold true for some time to come. And I don't know, it'd be interesting to see if it's more broadly descriptive, even just outside of Western cultural context. But anyway, so yeah, for me, this is a resource that I don't think this puts us in the explicit rating category for <laughs> podcasts, but it's a book called You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass by Mike McCart. Yes, that's a great one. <laughs> yeah, it was written in 2021. And a lot of it is based around his own personal journey. But anyone who's familiar with Mike McHarg and his work in another life, he was known as Science Mike because he has a vast interest in and really great depth of understanding about science. And so this book really is about harmful habits, brain structure, emotions, technology, language relationships, all kinds of things like that. And just a really great layperson's introduction into some of these topics. And Mike's just got a great sense of humor, just a really great author. So I would recommend checking out you're a miracle and a pain in the ass. <laughs> it's a great title. It's just fun to say. <laughs> it is. So along with everything else that we've mentioned in this episode, we will list all of these things in the show notes. And some of these you can find on the CRG, T-H-E-C-R-G.org, which is the Congregational Resource Guide. It's a resource where you can go and search by keyword. And it's got close to 2,000 of the best resources that we have found over the last number of years on all kinds of things related to congregational life. So check out thecrg.org. And we would like to invite you to follow, rate, and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. This helps others find this particular podcast. So we would love to have as many people listen as possible. We want this to be a very helpful resource. We would also love to hear from you. So as I mentioned in the episode, if you have any questions, thoughts, concerns, if you're curious about a previous episode, an education event, you want to let us know a topic or a guest that you think we should have, or just to give us feedback on episodes that you've heard, you can reach out to us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org. Once again, that's podcast at centerforcongregations.org. And that mailbox is lonely and it, it needs some attention. So we would love for you to write us an email and let us know how we're doing. Just say hello. It would be wonderful. Encourage Shelly to listen to more podcasts. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Oh, We would also like to thank the Lilly Endowment for their generous support. Without their financial support, we would not be able to bring this podcast to you. So we are very grateful for their generosity and support. So this episode was engineered and edited by Jaden Lee. Jaden always makes us sound great. And last but not least, we want to give our geographic shout out to our listeners. And for this, these are our listeners in the American Southwest from Glendale, 
Arizona. So thank you, Glendale, for listening to the podcast. We appreciate you being here. So for this episode of the Center for Congregations, I'm Matt Burke. And I'm Shelley Riggs-Jordan. Thanks for listening. Thank you.